It's over 9,000! Welcome Super Elite Warriors to Final Forum, a podcast for the discussion of all things Dragon Ball. I am your host, Jelly, an elite recruiting member of the Frieza Force, on a mission to find the best warriors from across the galaxy to join the greatest army of all time, and I am joined, as always, by my new recruit co-host. This is the beginning. Oh, the V is back, huh? (sighs) What? What? You just gave me an exasperated sigh. There it is again. What's your point? I was just commenting on your introduction and you're giving me guff? Guff? What are you, an elderly earth man? You know, we should really try to find that earth one of these days. But in any event, since we're just floating around in space... Floating around in space... Look, we just barely outran a cloud of killer amoeba. I died. Again. Not this again. Yes, this again. Do you have any idea how painful it is to die? I refuse to get into this with you. Because you still, for some reason, don't seem to understand what happens every time you put me in a situation where I die. Like, you don't understand that when I spit, I... As I was saying, we're just floating around and we have a lot to get through today. It's our Dragon Ball Halloween October event, so let's get into this week's topic. And yes, listeners, this is Dragon Ball Halloween, as we've come to call it, because we couldn't think of anything more clever or better. What we do during the month of October, since we both really do like October and we both like spooky season, but there's only like probably three times that you could do spookiest Dragon Ball something instead of spooky Dragon Ball things or things that are related to Dragon Ball that are horror or whatever. We go with the concept of costumes and with that concept of costumes, what we do during October is take a look at some Things that either inspired Dragon Ball or where creative voices behind Dragon Ball worked on something else. So last year we did Don Dracula, which I know we both loved. (laughs) (laughs) and, And we did that because there was a screenwriter. The screenwriter for Don Dracula was also a screenwriter for a bunch of Dragon Ball. And then we did Godzilla 1984 or Godzilla Returns commentary because Akira Toriyama has the briefest of cameos in that. And also he says, you know, Godzilla was an influence on him. And then also I'm, you know, now I've got our Godzilla quota here for this episode too. 
Check. Got that one out of the way quick. <laughs> so this year we're going to start off our Dragon Ball Halloween by looking at the Halo franchise. And we're going to look at three specific pieces of that Halo franchise. But aside from, we'll explain the connection to Dragon Ball later, why Halo? Like what puts Halo on our radar? I'll just say for me, I am a pretty big fan of the franchise. I've played four and a half of the games. <laughs> no, well, I guess more than that, because I've played Reach. So I've played five and a half of the games. I've seen, a, like, all of the official animated slash film media stuff. I've read a couple of the books, like, 15 years ago so don't ask me much about them other than i remember reading them and they were okay and i just i really dig the franchise i've been a fan of it since uh college i had a roommate who was really into it he owned an xbox 360 and the only games he owned for it were halo and halo 2 <laughs> and All i right. didn't have a video game system so the only games i played for like a year and a half of college, were Halo and Halo 2. I, honestly, you could do worse. <laughs> you could do way worse. Let's see. I think I've played just about every Halo game. I've seen some of the some of the stuff that we've we're going to be talking about today. I I tried my best to try and get into the Paramount Plus show. It just didn't happen. <laughs> I never read any of the books, but I did hear that they were all pretty decent. So. I mean, I guess they could do worse that way. Um, if, and then, like, the worst – I think probably the worst Halo tie-in thing I've ever seen is I think they did, like, a cookbook or something. <laughs> hmm. I'm all down for, like, fun and unique cookbooks. Like, Lord of the Rings. Uh, what else? What are some other franchises that I feel like could, could spin into, like, a cookbook? Honestly – like, The Simpsons has just been around long enough that you could probably make a Simpsons cookbook. You know, certain things lend themselves to cookbooks, and I'm all for it, but Halo, like, no one ever eats anything. Yeah, I'm, I'm not really sure what was in it for recipes, <laughs> to, be, to be completely frank. I never looked into it, but I did hear about it. So that's our, like, we're both fans of this franchise, I think that's fair to say. Definitely more from the, the video game perspective, but I mean, you know, some of the things that they did outside of that were pretty pretty good, in my opinion. Yeah. And so we're going to be talking about three of them today, so let's back the truck up a little bit, though, and talk about what Halo is, because maybe not everyone knows. It's possible. Halo is a science fiction, and now, if if you see any, any gaps in here, Bikini, as I'm saying this... I mean, mm -hmm. feel free to chime in, but like, I'm trying, I'm trying to condense there. You will watch, if you go to YouTube and you want to learn more about this, you'll see like 10 hour videos. Uh, and it'll be like 10 hour videos just on the lore of the games. Yeah. And it's and like most of that lore doesn't even involve Master Chief. And I'm trying to condense a lot of that that you do learn just from playing the games, honestly. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to condense all that into paragraphs here, so. If there's any mistakes, they're on me, not the storytelling of the games, I'll say. I, for, for brevity's <laughs> sake, we'll give you a pass on this, I think. 
So Halo is a science fiction military media franchise created by Bungie in 2001 with the release of the game Halo Combat Evolved. It's a first-person shooter that focuses on a war between humans and a loose confederation of multiple alien races known as the Covenant, who, during the course of a battle between the humans and Covenant, they come across an artificial ring planet that the Covenant aliens consider sacred, known as Halo. Over the course of that game, a second enemy is discovered, known as the Flood, which is a parasitic hive mind that can essentially, like, zombify any living creature. Halo's true purpose as a weapon of mass destruction that'll wipe out all life in the galaxy is revealed, and it is up to the player who takes control of Master Chief, the main character, to battle the Covenant, prevent the Flood from escaping Halo, and ensure that Halo is never fired to secure the continued survival of the human race and all sentient life of the galaxy. Over the course of this franchise and series, which now encompasses 11 mainline games, you discover more about the various alien races that comprise the Covenant, the history of the Halo installations, yes, there are more than one Halo out there in the universe, the Forerunner beings who constructed the Halos, the nature of the Flood, and the role humanity plays in the history of this universe. There's an extremely dense mythology and a lot of lore... And a million different rabbit holes you can fall down with this franchise with alternate reality viral games, collectible card games, board games, novels, comics, manga, guidebooks, art books, web series, TV shows, and movies. Some are pretty good. Some are absolutely abysmal. A great many hang out somewhere in the middle. And today we're going to talk about three of them. We're going to talk about Halo Landfall, which was the very first attempt at doing kind of anything for the franchise in a more cinematic live action way. We're going to talk about Halo Legends, which is the first series of shorts. They're all animated in some way, commissioned for this franchise. And we're going to briefly also talk about Halo, the new streaming series that dropped on Paramount Plus in 2022. Before we get into any of that, and I do have a primer on some of these races and all of that stuff. Before we get into that, let's talk, though, about the connection to Dragon Ball we have, and thus why we're doing this as an episode. Halo Legends has a segment directed by Daisuke Nishio, who we've talked about recently, at least briefly, and more in depth a little bit on our Curse of the Blood Rubies commentary. He was the director of several Dragon Ball movies, many episodes of the anime, and a bunch of Dr. Slump as well. We talked a little bit about Nishio before, but let's try to delve a little bit deeper if we can. Daisuke Nishio was born in April of 1959 in the Hiroshima area of Miyoshi City. His high school classmates included Hideki Yamanaka, a famous TV announcer, Koji Kikawa, a successful rock star, and Yuji Kotari, who was a writer or columnist. When he was at university, he learned about Toei offering entrance exams for new talent and joined the company along with Sailor Moon director Junichi Sato, Digimon's director Yukio Kaizawa, and Dr. Slump's co-director Horiki Shibata, Saint Seiya director uh, Atsutoshi Umezawa. He no longer specifically remembers when he began working on Dragon Ball, as he says there was some overlap in between Dr. Slump and Dragon Ball on the production side. While that was happening, he sort of bounced back and forth between the two, uh, but he was essentially there for the Dragon Ball anime from day one. His specialty is directing high-powered action sequences, and he helped bring the Pretty Cure series, created by Izumi Toto, to Toei Entertainment, directing the first two entries into the franchise. 
He's known for being slow and deliberate with crafting his storyboards as he wants to ensure he has episodes and movies well planned out before jumping into creation and emphasizes consistency in tone, style, and direction. He likes to know what his goal in creating something is and to find that answer before working on the story, which is a counterpoint to Toriyama who sort of makes things up and finds his story as he goes along. Nishio says that an episode takes about 200 production people, including animators, working together for up to four months to bring to completion. That number may be a mistranslation. We watched an interview with a Japanese person conducted by a Spanish reporter in Barcelona, which we then auto-translated to English, so throw a couple grains of salt in there. Uh, But in any event, it seems that he understands that a great many resources are dedicated to creating a film and wants to be sure where the product is headed before committing those resources. Much as Minoru Maeda uh, noted when it came to character designs, Nishio says that communication with Akira Toriyama was not day-to-day occurrence and typically only happened for sign-off when they were doing something that deviated from the manga or were creating new content to get uh, his approval. And also like Maeda, uh, he says he's very proud of and happy with his time in Dragon Ball but understands it's not his creation and is happy and excited to see it being contributed or continued by others. He also says his favorite character is Goku because he's the trunk off which branches the rest of the characters that others may find more interesting or exciting. He also says if he were to be granted a wish, it would be to, it would be to be self-sufficient enough such that he'd never need another wish. That's similar he, to yours. Kind of, a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm <laughs> seeing a pattern or at least a, a, a connection there. Nisho also worked on Gegege no Kitaro, which we've mentioned on the podcast before and remained active until at least 2010 when he directed – uh, the segment Odd One Out for Halo Legends. Yeah, he's a pretty interesting guy. I mean, he's he's been around for a long time, and he's worked on a lot of Dragon Ball, and he has the right attitude about it, I think. I would agree. Being, like, he should be proud and happy, and he definitely, if if you really pay attention to that Odd One Out segment, mm-hmm. you can definitely see the Dragon Ball style to it. And so mm-hmm. you could see how he brought his sensibilities and style to Dragon Ball, actually. This is like the first time I've seen it, something else that he that he's done. And I was like, as as soon as I saw it, before even knowing that he directed it, I was like, oh, this is like the Dragon Ball one. Th- there's some bits to the Halo mythology that, that you listeners will need to know in order to have something of a grasp on the forth- forthcoming discussion. So let's do our best here to condense two decades plus of expansion of this story into a bite-sized piece for this little podcast we do here. Tens of thousands of years ago, the Forerunners had a booming civilization until they came across the Flood. They tried hundreds of plans to defeat these space zombies, but ultimately arrived at the only way to defeat them being to ignite the Halo Rings, wiping out all life in the galaxy, including the Flood. Basically, the Forerunners sacrificed themselves to stop the space zombies from spreading beyond the galaxy. The Forerunners thus leave behind all of their technology and weaponry for future life forms to eventually find, which they ensure by having a bunch of DNA from different planets all throughout the galaxy in a facility that they call the Ark that won't be touched by the Halo Ring's pulse. Another thing we wind up learning much, much later on is that Forerunners code something into human DNA, which grants humanity the ability to use their technology. The Covenant, then, they're this loose federation of alien races that all have a role to play 
in a theocratic, militaristic government that they have. And these races are prophets, and prophets are the leadership. They're the brains of the covenant. They're the stewards of what the covenant call the Great Journey. The Great Journey is what the covenant believe the forerunners did millennia ago when they lit the halo rings and wiped out all of existence. They think the forerunners became godlike and left this plane of existence, and they, the covenant, want to ascend to that level as well. They consider humanity's very existence to be heresy and an affront to the gods, and they want to wipe us all out. And they're also obsessed with the forerunners, and they worship forerunner technology as sacred. Then you have <clears throat> drones, who are what they sound like. They, like, fly around and shoot stuff. There's nothing super exciting. Grunts, also basically what they sound like. They run around and are easy to kill. They're also a huge source of humor. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They have some really great dialogue bits, for sure. They really do. I especially like there's different settings in the games where you can change a few things. And One of my favorite things to do is to set the graphics such that when you headshot a grunt instead of like, you know, the, the, the typical digital blood spider or whatever, their head just explodes into confetti and then a bunch yes. of kids go, Yay <laughs> I enjoy that also, actually. <laughs> you have jackals who are just the snipers basically of the covenant. Some of them have shields and some of them have actual sniper rifles. Hunters these are kind of like living tanks. They're actually a collection of hundreds of worms that band together and create a singular consciousness. But that's a hunter. Elites. And this is where, after prophets, this is where things start to get a little more interesting. The elites are the commanders of covenant armies. Over the course of the series, the elites wind up learning the truth about this quote-unquote great journey. And that it's basically just going to eradicate all life. And they turn on the prophets and cause a covenant civil war, becoming allies with humanity. Additionally, there's a position among the elites called the Arbiter. There's a lot to unpack with Arbiters, but basically <clears throat> it's a position that under the, uh, under the leadership of the covenant, under the time that elites have been part of the covenant sort of becomes foisted upon elites who have brought shame to the covenant in some way as a way for them to redeem their honor. Arbiters are given impossible and suicidal tasks and sent on missions in order to purify their sins. But the position of Arbiter didn't actually start off like that. It's a manipulative thing done by the prophets after these elites joined the ranks of the covenant to keep the elites in check. And by the end of Halo 3... The newest Arbiter becomes the leader of all the elites. Then there are Brutes. These are the newest members of the Covenant and the most willing and ready fighters. They're not introduced until Halo 2, and they don't take a larger role until Halo 3, when the elites turn on the Prophets. When that happens, Brutes become the new generals and the new leaders, and they're like, in Halo 3, they become that role when you're playing the game. It's instead of elites running around with the better weapons and higher shields and things, it's the Brutes. The Covenant want to wipe out humanity, and they're good at it, with their technology being better than ours. They even have the ability to track humans through hyperspace, which is called slip space in the Halo universe, which causes humans to create a protocol that says any spaceship fleeing a battle with the Covenant has to make a random jump through slip space. That way, if the Covenant follow them, 
they don't follow them to Earth and therefore find our home world. And this is actually where Halo 1 starts with a ship that flees a battle and randomly jumps through this slip space into where one of the Halo rings is. And the Halo rings are these man-made, well, forerunner-made planets that look like rings, but they're they're planets. They have, they're like a biosphere, but in a ring form. I think the last couple pieces to note maybe here are that the main character that you play, Master Chief, is basically a bioweapon. He's created via genetic modification and intense training to be the perfect soldier. He's known as a Spartan. And the history on these soldiers is that before humanity even encountered the Covenant and faced extermination at the hands of these aliens, there were human colonies across the galaxy, and Spartans were originally created to squash rebellions and insurrections on the outer colonies. They get kidnapped from their homes as children and replaced by clones who die shortly thereafter to give their families closure, but these children are relentlessly trained and turn into these genetic behemoths. So you get some moral gray area stuff as the franchise goes along, and you kind of learn. Yeah, it's a little, little darker than gray, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Considering that, like, I think it's like, I don't remember the exact percentage, but it's like three quarters of those kids that they kidnapped actually were either die or become horribly disfigured from the yep. treatments that they go through. Yeah. So like they didn't even like they didn't even get full use out of the kids that they kidnapped. A lot of them they they killed or worse. Yes. It's not great. <laughs> and and lastly, humans have advanced AI that do kind of everything. That's fair. Each, yeah. Each Spartan is paired with an AI, so in terms of the Halo gameplay, you have a thing that gives you hints and instructions. Master Chief's AI is called Cortana. And she's the most advanced. She's more advanced than any of the others. She has more of a personality and an ability to employ creative thinking. But the drawback with her, then, is that she has a shorter lifespan. And ultimately, she's actually going to think herself to death in, I think, like, her lifespan's supposed to be seven years? Yeah. I, I don't remember specifically if she exceeds that or not. I think that's, like kind of a huge piece of the story of halo 4 it's been a minute since i played that one yeah her, her because the, she's it, past her expiration date basically right and it's not that she's well, i mean she is the most advanced ai but there's a class of ai that are all similar to her and they deal with this issue called rampancy which is what you're describing where they they think themselves to death before getting to that point where they think themselves to death they start becoming very erratic and not very kind to humanity <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into these three creations, starting with Halo Landfall. Now, this is the short little like fan film almost, right? My it's not a right? fan film, exactly. It's that feel to it, though. Uh, this is basically just a battle sequence for seven minutes. Now, did this one come out with Halo 3, I think it was, right? It It did, as like a way to promote Halo 3. It basically just tells the story of... What are they? They're called they're called ODSTs in the Halo universe. They're that stands for Orbital Drop Shock Drop 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 Shock Trooper, and these are non Spartans. They are Marines who are supposed to like drop in behind enemy lines and you know flank. They're like paratroopers of the 
what what year what year does this take place in like the 25th century or something something like that yeah and it was to promote Halo 3 which one of the storylines of Halo 3 is that the covenant have invaded earth there's a whole bunch of reasons for that <laughs> <laughs> that's that's more of the lore that we really can't dig into otherwise this entire broadcast would just be lore <laughs> but um, yeah it's it's a, a bunch of humans trying to fight off brutes, basically. But yeah, there's there's some really good action shots in here. They they basically open up with it's almost like a like a fabrication plant of some sort. Um, and you can see like weapons being made and like the 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 warthogs being made, and then like they also do a little bit of like inter interstitial shots with um different like marines and things like that, and like doing like quick little stat like things for them and whatnot. Um, and then it progresses to like, like you said, the actual battle scene. Interesting stuff going on with the the, <laughs> the special effects. It was definitely not high budget. I'll say that. Yeah. Like I said, it's got that that sort of like like a fan film almost feel to it. But it's yeah, it's just like a, a, a warthog driving around, a bunch of gunfire going off. They have a nice shot of a pelican drop or like flying in and dropping off a, a warthog. Yeah, so so Halo Landfall was a group of three very short live-action films commissioned by Bungie and created by director Neil Blomkamp uh, with effects by Weta Digital to market Halo 3. It was kept tight under wraps and debuted by uh, surprise in the lead-up to Halo 3. Uh, Weta Workshop worked to build actual props of the Warthog vehicle, uh, several of the guns from the games, as well as all the costumes, uh, all of which were wound up basically as keepsakes for Bungie and, and sort of sit on display in their company lobby now. Uh, the shorts were essentially camera tests used to assess the viability of a Halo li live action film, but were then spun into uh, a marketing campaign, because I guess if you're going to spend the money, you might as well try and get something out of it, right? Yeah. Yeah, so that's... They have that, that cheap feel to them, because they really were not even intended to be used as what they wound up being used as, which is the the marketing stuff is they were really just because for a time neil blomkamp was actually in talks to direct like a 150 million dollar halo movie if you don't know who neil blomkamp is he's the director of district nine that's like his best contribution to cinema i personally enjoy both chappie and elysium okay most people don't but he's, uh, you know, District 9 alone is like, it's one of those things where you make something that good and you've made your mark forever, I think. Uh, because okay. I, I think District 9 is fantastic. It um, is a good movie. I enjoy it. Now, when these were commissioned, though, it was Halo 3 time, which, what year would Halo 3 be? Oh, seven. Mm, oh, seven is what exactly what I was going to say. So at this point... What Neil Blomkamp is known for is, like, a few short films, and that's it. His 2005 short film called Alive in Joburg is actually what goes on to inspire District 9 as a, as a complete story. He, he's really just known for these couple short movies. Before you're going to hand the keys to the kingdom to a guy to make a $150 million-plus tentpole franchise movie... You want to see that he can do it. Or at least, you know, that's how the world worked 20 years ago. You would hope. <laughs> These <laughs> days, they just slap that guy in there and boss him around. 
<laughs> and they tell him to make a movie that the algorithm says to make. But but in the before times, you would you would set up this guy to do some screen tests. And they were like, here's like a couple hundred thousand dollars to make these props. Go go film something though. He did, and it came back, and they were like, oh, whoa. This is actually pretty good. Especially when you consider that these effects, like you said, they don't look great, but on no budget 15 years ago, they're actually pretty good. Yeah. So they were like, yeah, let's use it. And and yeah, I I think for what this is, and especially as like, if you consider this like, if this is your seven minute pitch to go make a Halo movie... That's I think a pretty it's good one. Great. Yeah, and and like going back to the whole like it was yeah, I mean, we're talking this wasn't even really intended for anybody outside of the company to see. I would highly recommend this if you're into Halo and you've never heard of this. Cause again, it's seven minutes and you're you watching it, you'll be like, Oh wow, this is like It's pretty a, good. A Halo thing could be good. But so no, I would um what would I give this out of Dragon Balls. I would be very generous. I'm I'm going to give it a 6 out of 7 Dragon Balls. I was also going to give it a 6 out of 7. It's not perfect cuz like I mean it's just a quick 7 minute short film, you know, and and there's definitely I think some things that could have maybe been polished a little bit better, but again, when you take into account this wasn't really intended for like a mass audience to see, but it, we still all got to see it anyway. I I think that's pretty impressive, and when you watch it, I I feel like oh, okay, yeah, that's why they wanted to put it out there because it's genuinely good. I agree. So yeah, that's that's Halo Landfall. It's a, it's a cool, quick little thing. Now moving on to Halo Legends, which is more the reason we're here. Though Bungie developed that first Halo game when they were when they were purchased by Microsoft in two thousand. Microsoft also purchased the rights to the intellectual property of Halo, and they then held the game off to be used as a launch title for the Xbox. So Bungie actually kind of had the game ready to go, but Microsoft purchased them and was like, whoa, this game's good. We're going to use it as an Xbox launch title. Fast forward many years to 2007, and Bungie announces announces they're splitting off from Microsoft. They're kind of going back out on their own. It's um, think of like Pixar used to be on their own, then part of Disney, then on their own again for a little bit, and then part of Disney again. Exactly the same. Somewhat similar, I would say, right? <laughs> yeah, that's similar. Though Bungie's final Halo game was not released until 2010, Microsoft retained the IP rights to Halo after the split between Microsoft and Bungie, and they then, Microsoft, created 343 Industries in order to continue the Halo franchise. Their first foray into that arena was not a new game. Rather, it was a, because probably because they were like, oh, Bungie's got this game that's like almost ready for us. Let's just let that game come out with let's not work on another game yet but rather so to get 343 into halo and and start making content it was they commissioned a series of shorts called halo legends which was meant to expand the franchise beyond games and follow the model of the star wars expanded universe and telling stories that span out from that core idea 
In order to showcase the potential for Halo in a variety of different formats and styles, 343 had the idea where they would they would write a bunch of story outlines and scripts, give them to five major anime studios, and tell them to animate the stories in whatever style they saw fit. Frank O'Connor, who was 343's creative director for Halo at the time, oversaw the production of the scripts and notes that 50% or more of the dialogue submitted to the studios were actually kept, but much of the pacing and things like that, pacing, tone, style, were changed as directors thought about adapting these outlines and scripts into actual films beyond just like the story that 343 wanted them to, to tell. The studios were actually given pretty wide latitude, though provided with a franchise bible of rules and history to follow. And all the stories, except for one, are part of the franchise's official canon. And guess which one that is, though? It's, <laughs> it's Daisuke Nishio's entry, Odd One Out. Oh man. I really <laughs> like that Spartan. I wanted him to be canon. <laughs> so let's walk through these and just talk through each one as we go. First up is Origins, produced by Studio 4C, directed by Hideki Futurama. Or, sorry, Futamura. I apologize for that. Uh, Futamura is... just thinking of Futurama. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of Futurama. Damn it. <laughs> Futamura is a very prolific animator, having worked on the likes of Akira, Gundam, Vampire Hunter D, and The Animatrix. And Studio 4C are most known for creating Kid's Story, The Second Renaissance, Beyond, and a detective story for the anime adaptations of the Matrix franchise, The Animatrix. Origins is is the the history of a hundred thousand year long Halo universe. A lot of the lore centered around like the forerunners and things like that that we kind of touched on earlier. That's that's kind of where you dig into the real meat of it is in this uh, this particular story. Yeah, this one really is basically just like what I said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> this one's frustrating for me because so have you seen the Animatrix? I have. Okay. The origin story thing in the Animatrix is like my favorite thing in the Animatrix. Oh, it's excellent. I love it. The second it's called the Second Renaissance, isn't it? So Studio Four C seems like the 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 perfect match for this. Mm-hmm. Instead, and maybe it's just because I play a lot of Halo and I've gotten a lot of this from like playing through the games, and I'm one of those people that when I play a game, I try to go for, like, as close to 100% as possible, so I, like, find all the hidden terminals, and I look at all the the things that pop up when you go to those terminals. Those are, terminals are things in the Halo game where you, like, go, and they're hidden. They're, like, hard to get to, or not in places that you would think to look, and when you interact with them, they give you either bits of dialogue, they are the thoughts of, like, one of the forerunner AI, or they give you little cutscenes that expand on more of the lore and everything of Halo. And so maybe it's because I do all that and I already knew all this, but I found this just, just like, I was like, oh yeah, I already know all this and it's not being presented in a way that's unique or interesting, really. I think that, uh, that we kind of have rose-tinted glasses about it as well, because like you were just describing, we... We got this story already, but we got it in a much more interesting and and brain teasery sort of way. And so I think, like as far as as the the content that's covered, 
I think they go over a lot and there's some really interesting stuff in there, but I think the presentation, because it's not part of the game for me, at least feels a little lacking and it becomes, it, it just becomes a lore dump essentially. Yeah. Yeah. It's this, this was, I was watching, I was like, Oh no, this is like, cause I, I've watched Halo legends before and I was like, Oh yeah, I kind of liked it. And I watched this and I was like, Oh no, did I, was I dumb? <laughs> <laughs> Is this all going to be boring? But yeah, no, it's, you know, from a guy who worked on Akira, which I love that movie, and Vampire Hunter D, which I think I've seen. And that. I, I haven't seen that one. I've seen. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. Is And that I liked. I liked the Animatrix. I, this just, it, it like falls short for me. Well, you know, not everything a studio puts out has to be a masterpiece. There could be misses. I give this one like a three out of seven Dragon Balls. I was a little kinder. I gave it a four. It's tough. What's tough is it, it, it can get really hard for me sometimes when I interact with this stuff. I, and I think this is something that a fan of any franchise has difficulty with is. OK, this this maybe isn't working for me as a fan. Would it work? Would this work for someone who's not a fan? That's, that's a good question. I don't know. That's a tough question to answer. Maybe that's something one of our viewers would be willing to answer. Next up, we got the, the duel. Uh, the duel was produced by production. IG and directed by Hiroshi Yamazaki. Uh, production. IG is probably most known for ghost in the shell series, standalone complex. Yamazaki has only a few credits to his name, most notable of which uh, is as the producer on Ghost in the Shell. The, the film itself it takes place long, long before the actual Halo story. It tells the story of uh, one of the previous arbiters for the elites, or as they were known originally as the Sangali. That's that's how they identify, I guess, their own race. But a story of Arbiter Fall Chavame, uh, who refuses to accept the Covenant religion. So this is kind of going back to what you described earlier where they kind of had their own thing going on. Then the covenant sort of absorbed them and then changed the role of the arbiter to sort of help subjugate their species and then, you know, flip it back to the way it was uh, once they encountered humanity. Mm -hmm. This one for me is, is a favorite. I don't know if you will agree, but I kind of get Kurosawa vibes from this one. This one is a favorite. Also, I, I would like, the animation to just be a smidge cleaner. Yeah, I'm not a I'm not a huge fan of that that sort of like dappled look it's got to it. It it makes it just kind of muddies everything. But and I, I feel like the the action, especially in this, would have been helped with something a little bit crisper and cleaner. Just a little, because I do like the painterly style, and I sure. like the idea of. If this were animated in the style of the tale of Princess Kaguya, the Studio Ghibli film, which I mean, mm -hmm. I, that's like a lofty expectation, I guess, because I just said Ghibli. <laughs> if this were like in that kind of style where like that is a very like soft animated, it's like watercolor almost. And that's this has that kind of vibe going for it. Sure. I think it would have like it would be like a super standout like you could show this to people and be like this is incredible 
Sure. I, and I don't mean I'm not looking for like those sort of like angular action lines that we get from Dragon Ball, because I agree. I think you could do a softer style in with action and, and absolutely make it work. But yes, it's definitely particularly that that sort of dappling that makes everything muddy. And I feel like you lose some clarity in there. Mm hmm. But I do I do agree. I, I, I get some Kurosawa vibes for sure off of this. You know, the, OK, the... good. I'm glad I'm not insane. then. <laughs> <laughs> It's in no small part because this one, and this is like, this whole thing, all of Halo Legends reminds me a lot, so I'll, I, I may draw more parallels to it, I'm not sure, but the whole thing reminds me a lot of Star Wars Visions. Oh, yeah, 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 the, the Disney Plus, like, animated anthology thing. Yeah, it has a lot of the same, like, strengths and weaknesses, but... This is one where, just like like my favorite ones in Halo Visions, or in Star Wars Visions, this one like really leans into the Japanese of it. I think the elites... Yeah, definitely. The, I think the elites and like the Sangheili, whatever you want to call them, they lend themselves to being like samurais very, very well. Sure. And so portraying them and their culture as basically Japanese and... and like very samurai kind of driven totally works. Absolutely. I agree. And I think it, again, it comes down to how they were designed. You look at their armor, it, it's got the, the elaborate like helmets and stuff and different face plates denoting like different ranks. And then, uh, their choice of weapon, obviously swords. I mean, yeah, it translates pretty, pretty well. And then the thing is, uh, I don't recall, before this short film, anything uh, like encountering anything in the lore that made that parallel, I think this is like the the first time it was really kind of brought to my attention, at least. I feel like the only thing that even comes close, really, uh, is the the honor guard for the prophets. Yeah, have those like they have those. Oh, what are those called? Those like big samurai helmets. They have those where they have like the big kind of wings or whatever coming out of the helmet top. Yeah. And and um they've also got like for those of you that don't know this this race of humans got like weird mandibles and their helmets also have like like almost like a face mask aspect to it to like cover those mandibles to protect them. But No, I like this one. I would give this one I'd probably give this one a 5 out of 7. I was going to say 6. But yeah, that's that's it, pretty close. I'm like torn between a five and a six. Like, I think, I think a little bit better role for the wife, and I could probably get to a six, and a little bit crisper animation, and I could get to a seven, like easily. Yeah, that was it's those two same things that also hold it back from being perfect for me. Moving along, we have Homecoming, directed by Koji Saiwa, who was worked on such titles as Parasite, which is this bloody, violently insane anime, not the Chanwu Park film. We just want to put that out there. And Rama One Half, which I think we've mentioned in passing at least once somewhere, but I don't remember specifically which episode. So best thing to do is probably just go back and listen to our entire catalog for, you know, a single passing reference somewhere. I would do it. I mean, who wouldn't? Only <laughs> only only a jerk wouldn't do that. Homecoming is produced by B-Train, who are pioneers in the Yuri genre, which is where strong young female leads are involved in gay relationships as they beat up bad guys. Apparently, Noir, Hacksign, and Madlax 
are their more well-known titles. I've never heard of any of those. Tax Sign is um, this anime, and this well, only one of the three that I've seen, but it's this anime about a guy who gets stuck in a multi, massive multiplayer online role-playing game. So think of like getting sucked into your computer and being stuck in World of Warcraft, essentially. Mm. So the film itself, Homecoming, is focused on the tragedies involving Spartan II recruitment. And this is what I was kind of alluding to earlier, where it gets it gets really dark with some of Halo's history. And the Spartan program is one of them. You know, like we were t- discussing earlier, uh, kids were kidnapped. They were replaced with like genetic copies that were modified to have like genetic diseases, things like cystic fibrosis and stuff like that. So like not only are they kidnapping the kids, but they're actually like cloning the kids and then like programming the clones to self-destruct, which traumatizes their families because they all die young. And then they take these kids, they kind basically torture them, put them through all kinds of medical treatments and harsh physical training just to kind of breed the perfect soldiers. And then on top of all that, their original purpose was to violently subdue insurrections on human colonies on other planets. And many of them, as is seen in this in this episode or whatever you want to call it, is many of them get mutilated by these augmentations. In in those cases, the lucky ones are the ones that still get to do to work in some capacity in the military. The worst case scenario being that like you're they're permanently disabled or or even dead. Mm-hmm. But dark, dark subject matter. And and yeah. and the film itself, the, the short film itself is mirrors that because it is in itself a depressing story. Honestly, it is. It yeah, it's a pretty good one though. Actually, if if you if you want that, like if you are looking for an examination of that. You disagree that I say gray area, but you know. <laughs> well, it's that, it is it's gray. I, w- I would think I think that the difference the, here is that I I think it's a significantly darker shade of gray. <laughs> <laughs> but it, if you want an examination of that that sort of gray area of this franchise and and looking at what these Spartans kind of really are, this is a good, especially for how long it is. It's not very long. Is a good look at that. Sure. I, I also think thematically it's interesting for a story like this that's that's gone through multiple mediums and, and at this point is, you know, working on like its third game and it's putting out all these little short films and stuff to be able to, to look at the protagonists of that series, the humans, and say, well, no, they did some pretty dark stuff to themselves before any of this happened. Mm-hmm. And it was this outside force, the Covenant, that actually kind of turned humanity towards unification and working together instead of infighting right and then that brings up some questions that i don't know if they've been explored in halo yet of like now that ultimately like humanity is gonna you know defeat the covenant basically Mm -hmm. are they still gonna get along sure once you once you remove the threat of extinction (laughs) because that's what basically unites humanity is when they first encounter the covenant planets are what's called glassed which is where the covenant ships can basically burn a planet so bad that its surface becomes molten and then turns into glass the reason they don't do that all of the time is because as i mentioned before 
they're obsessed with forerunner technology and there's forerunner technology on some of these planets so when they think there's forerunner tech there they invade rather than glass the planet but once you eliminate the threat of that is humanity still gonna get along <laughs> and i and my follow-up question well not really a follow-up i guess in addition to yours is assuming that humanity doesn't fully wipe out the covenant in the war but they like you said just remove that threat of annihilation how do they treat the covenant after that as well because if you look at this and you can see what humans are willing to do to themselves to hurt other humans how are they going to react to a completely alien species that it no longer is a, an existential threat to them right none of that examined in this short <laughs> <laughs> no this but is this more, short it, is, it's is... like a like a tragic love story really it is, yeah. This is the one where she, like, escapes, right, and goes back to her home. There, yeah, and she, she encounters, like, the clone version of herself. Who's dying. And I think it's uh, Dr. Halsey's, like, the, the head of the, the program. I don't think it's Halsey. I think it's, like, some other doctor or something like that finds her and is like, well, your family already assumes you're dying anyway, so if you just go back, you're just going to mess with your family some more so why don't you come back to the child torture and we'll turn you into a soldier and you can make the world a better place for your family or essentially that's the argument i guess and then i the 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 other plot line there is also she encounters uh one of the people that she escaped with originally on the field of battle and there's like that moment of uh reunion um but she's at the same time she's like wounded or something like that mm-hmm but at the same time, they're they're also not going to be able to be together again. It's depressing, like I said. <laughs> it is. So, um, hmm, what would I give this one? I might give this one a four. I was going to say about the same, a four. It's, I appreciate what they're trying to do thematically. The art is competent, but it's just, it doesn't stick with you very long. I think yeah. this is one that that sort of gets lost in some of the other entries that are a lot stronger. I agree. With, I would agree with that. The midpoint of the anthology is Odd One Out, directed by Daisuke Nishio, produced by Toei Animation. I don't think anybody's ever heard of these guys before. Mm -mm. This one's probably my favorite. Well, there's um, no probably about it for me. It's just this... All I can think about of it is this is like the shonen anime version of Master Chief. <laughs> I and I, I realize that that's that's exactly what it's supposed to be, especially given that that it's Toei Animation that's doing it. But so for those of you that don't know, Spartans have number call signs. Like they don't, they're they're actually raised to only go by their first names. I think it is. And then in on, in like official communication, their first names are not used. It is just a number. So, for instance, Master Chief, his name is John, and he goes in official documentation as Spartan 117. The character in this one is Spartan 1337. Anyone who has played enough video games will know 1337 is internet speak for elite or elite, meaning incredibly skilled. And the guy is just like I don't, a walking embodiment of machismo and like manliness. I don't know how else to describe him, really. He's like 
It's like if you like mixed Goku and Vegeta together. Because he's like a braggart and arrogant, but he's also like a a nice bag. guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a pr- <laughs> that's actually really good. And yes, he's nice. And he's clumsy. Uh, he's, yeah, he's got like this goofy demeanor. I don't I don't remember how the kids show up. I think it's because he's on another like a colony planet, and they're they're like part of a, a family like of settlers or something. Um, but then they encounter a brute. And it's like the oldest son and the oldest daughter are like hand to hand combating with a brute, which blows my mind. This guy shows up and starts fighting alongside them. Basically, uh, I think there's a uh, like a, I think there's a B plot going on with Master Chief. It's so <laughs> the story. The story of this character, thirteen thirty seven, is that he has fallen out of pelicans multiple times. <laughs> Just fallen out. And while they're on a mission together, Master Chief and 1337, he slips and falls out of a pelican. That's right. That's what it was. And Master Chief continues to the mission, and he's like, but you have to get to the rendezvous. There's so much Dragon Ball in this. And I mean, like, especially, like, original Dragon Ball, like... He, yeah. he, as he's running across the planet, he bumps into the, the couple of kids and he's like talking to them and they're like, don't stand there. And he's like, I could st- whatever, stand anywhere I want. And a dinosaur bites him. <laughs> yeah. And like starts whooping him around. At the end of the episode, he gets carried off by a pterodactyl. That, oh, that was so Dragon Ball. Because I, like I saw that and I was like, oh, there's the Bulma thing all over again. <laughs> but so like, it's funny because like, I really like this one a lot, and as goofy as I as it is, there's nothing else about it that feels like it can't be part of the canon. Mm-hmm. I wish it was. And the way I look at it is like the the sort of goofiness of it can just be sort of explained away as like, well, that's that's the kids explaining what happened. Oh, you could do that. You could even just have it be goofy. Just have it be this one Spartan, like, he. everyone else gets physically mangled by the, the things. Maybe his brain got messed up. <laughs> that's, that's a good, I like that. That's good. It's kinetic. It's funny. It's energetic. The animation's solid. This one's, like, I love this one. This one's great. I give this one easily, like, a six out of seven. It's, yeah, six, possibly even a seven, depending on the day. And it's goofy. And even if you're resistant, because I was a resistant to it initially when I first saw it, I was like, oh, God, this is so dumb. But by the end of the film, I was like, I love this guy. I think it, it works really well if you put yourself in that mindset of like, like I do when I watch Dragon Ball of like, it's funny sometimes because it's not funny. <laughs> The the, yeah. the comedy is so, like, saccharine and so child-friendly that it becomes, like, funny. So kicking off the back half, half of this anthology is Prototype, uh, directed by Tomoki Kyoda, who has worked on the Rebuild of, e- Rebuild of Evangelion in Eureka 7, produced by Bones. Bones is one of the biggest, most popular anime studios in Japan, and they've worked on the Cowboy Bebop films, They've worked on Full Metal Alchemist, and they have a branch currently dedicated exclusively to My Hero Academia, which is the hot shonen anime du jour 
I like My Hero Academia. I'm a little behind. Uh, I I don't bother watching the anime until the entire season is done, and I've I'm current on the manga. I think it's a great show. Uh, so this is the one with the Algolus invasion and the one soldier putting on an experimental suit of armor in order to kind of hold the line, as it were, while everyone else evacuates behind him. The reasoning for this is because of – I can't remember the name of it, but you, you described it earlier. The proto, uh, there, there's protocols when uh, humans encounter Covenant during the war, mm-hmm. and one of them is if there's even a possibility of something – like some earth technology being captured they want it destroyed as opposed to being captured so the covenant cannot glean any information regarding humanity's whereabouts from any of like the data systems i think that one is the coal protocol coal protocol yes that's it and i think the one that says you have to randomly jump is the keys protocol I'm not yes, sure. because it was because it was Commander Keys, who was the captain of the Pillar of Autumn from Halo One, who had originally devised the technique for random jumping. It's a pretty straightforward storyline. I think it does it pretty well. The art is amazing in this one. Yeah, overall, I think it was pretty decent. Definitely one of the stronger entries here. Yeah, it's it is basically just a action scene, <laughs> but yes, it's got good art. It's got uh, solid style to it. If you if if you Ben Jones in for some action, because the couple of the ones that lead up to this, like Homecoming, and uh, in fact, pretty much everything leading up to this is a little light on action. Yep. This is where you get your like like ah oh, here's here's some sweet sweet Halo action, <laughs> and yeah, it's a it's a fun one for sure. I, I, there's really not much more to say about that. I mean, I don't think so. So I don't know where you are on this one. I'm at like a five out of seven, just because there is no meat to it. Yeah, I was gonna say probably like a, a a four, tipping towards five. Then we have the Babysitter, which is the sixth installment, directed by Toshiyuki Kano, and produced again by Studio 4C. Kano gives us another Dragon Ball connection, as he was a key animator and or animation director. Uh, for Battle of Gods, the OVA Hey Son Goku, and Friends Return, which feature the debut of Tarble, Dragon Ball GT, Dragon Ball Z, and five of the Dragon Ball movies. The only information beyond a list of credits we could find was a brief interview he gave to AnimationMagazine.net in December of 2009, wherein he says he's inspired by the story of the Forerunner as this vast, ancient, ruined civilization of long-dead aliens that leave a a mark on everything else in the universe. And he mentioned that while the script received was good, it needed finesse to work better for animation. We couldn't find anything uh, where he ever talked about Dragon Ball, though, sadly. So the short film itself, The Babysitter, is about a group of uh, ODST, the Orbital Drop Shock Troopers, going on a covert mission with a Spartan. Basically, it's it's kind of like a little bit of a character study on like how each of these troops kind of react to having a, a Spartan within the group and sort of their overall feelings about Spartans prior to and after the mission. As far as like what actually happens on screen, uh, these guys get sent on a covert mission. Uh, they go out with the Spartan. The Spartan saves one of the soldiers' lives and then when they get to they're trying to assassinate a prophet at these 
I'm not sure what the location we call it. I guess they're their eagle's nest or whatever. Yeah. Um, they get ambushed, and the Spartan has to defend the troops and gets hurt in the process. And the issue here being that originally the Spartan was going to be the sniper in this situation um, and is now wounded, can't be the sniper. So one of the ODST, who's a, a sniper himself, steps up, takes the shot, completes the mission so that the, the Spartan sacrifice essentially is not in vain. And it just kind of fits in with this sort of running theme they've got where it's it's basically humanity kind of putting aside its petty differences to, tr- to fight a greater threat, essentially. I do like that this one ticks on a thing that that you don't see a ton of at least in this but you do get more of as you play through the franchise as it goes along of master chief is seen as like a savior who destroyed a whole covenant armada single-handedly and ultimately helped win the war but Mm -hmm. not everyone trusts these spartans and that's in no small part because as you're playing through the game, like it's not until the events of Halo 4 that anyone really starts to find out about all of these war crimes <laughs> that, <laughs> yeah, are com- that are committed in order to create a Spartan. So all anyone sees are these giant, like seven and a half feet tall super soldiers that can do anything and kill everything but they're also like generally pretty emotionless pretty like closed off they stay on mission they don't get into camaraderie and things like that and so not everyone likes them right and i do like that this one examines that it's a little tropey right like you watch this episode and you're like Oh, you're being sent on a sniper mission and this one guy really hates Spartans. I yeah. I can see where this is going like right off the bat. Yeah. And that's probably my my primary complaint about this one is to me the 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 script seems a little weak. But that said, that's like the weakest part of this. Like the art direction's great, the visuals are are fantastic it's just i wish they had done maybe a a little bit more or been a little bit more subtle or creative with the themes that they were playing with yeah this is one where it almost feels like you know when when we mentioned earlier that the the guy who was overseeing 343 like commissioned a bunch of outlines and a bunch of stories and then they kept the dialogue but just changed sometimes like their approach or the tone or whatever. This one is the one where I almost feel like with that in mind, this one probably stuck kind of the closest to what they were handed. And yeah, I could see that. And maybe they shouldn't have. <laughs> <laughs> Cause I mean, I'll, there were points where like, I almost knew what the characters were going to say before they said it. Yes. Especially the and- guy, you know, she saves the one dude from drowning and she's carrying him and they're like, oh, it's your new girlfriend, you know, like. Yeah. Or or when the Spartan gets injured and the other guys are like, you got to take the shot. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, of course he's going to take the shot. He Chekhov gunned himself in the first, like, 30 seconds of the, the film. Yeah, when he's like, I'm supposed to be the sniper, but if she's the sniper, what am I even doing here? And you're like, okay. Oh, okay. So this is how it's going to go. <laughs> All right. <laughs> 
that said, I did like that they used a female Spartan. I think that's something that gets overlooked a lot in in the lore is that there there were quite a few female Spartans as well. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of female soldiers in the Halo franchise. That is true. Good for them. <laughs> <laughs> I give this one a three out of seven because, like I said, the, the script is the weakest part, but it's also kind of the most important part. So yeah. even though everything else is great, you know, sound direction, visuals, everything's wow, chef's kiss. Excellent. The story itself is just kind of blah. This is one where I'll be a little kinder and I'll say this one to me gets a four. But yes, it's it's like the the script is super, super weak. All right. Finally, we have The Package, which was directed by Shinji Aramaki, uh, who also directed a 2019 Ultraman anime and was produced by Casio Entertainment, a studio so unknown we could only find one other title they were credited as having done anything. And that was the film Big Man Japan. Which that movie is awesome, of. by the way. Is it? I not, I've never even heard of it. Not for everyone, for sure. It's like a, it's like a takedown parody satire of Ultraman, essentially, kind of. Where ah, okay. the the main character, and he's like a famous comedian in Japan. I can't remember uh, the actor's name. I'll try and look it up real quick. But the main character is. He's capable of turning into a giant and fighting off monsters. And it's like a family business. It's been like in his family for generations. And when his like grandfather did it, he had a TV show, like a weekly TV show, and everyone loved him. And now he does it and nobody cares about him anymore. And it's like this, this like sad sack trying to live his life as like a washed up former hero who still has to go do that job but nobody like likes him anymore Mm -hmm. and it's really interesting there's a really interesting stylistic decision where during the first 80 percent of the movie it's all cg and it's kind of not good cg but then at the end a thing happens where it twists and it all becomes tokusatsu it all becomes men in suits and it becomes an out and out parody of Ultraman and he he like receives help from an Ultraman family who oh man I forget what they're called specifically but they are basically like you get to the end of this movie and it's essentially about Japan the main character is big man Japan he is actually like literally like like big Japan (laughs) Fighting a red devil, China, Yikes. being aided, maybe, kind of, but also being, like, like demeaned and ridiculed while he's trying to help by a family of ultra people who are, like, they're, like, the Freedom Family or something like that, where they're America. <laughs> I knew where that was going, but yeah, okay. <laughs> and it's like, it's things like, like, they are beating the absolute crap out of the devil, and, you know, then they do, like, a thing where they're firing a beam at it, and he, like, holds his hand in also, and then takes it off, 
And then he puts it on, and, t- and he's like, oh, I'm not even doing anything. <laughs> but they, like, insist that he helps them, even though he's not doing anything. And it's like, contribute anything. Yeah. you could see how that's, like, like analyzing the Japan-America yeah. relationship, especially with China. The Super Justice Just Family. Bit. The Super Justice Family. Oh, boy. Yes. <laughs> I should add that to my list. And the the main act, it, it's a little slow. I'll say that. Like, it's it's a very it's because it's like two hours long. It should probably be more like an hour forty. But it, if if you know a bit about Japan and and the history of like how t- giant monster movies used to be super popular and kind of aren't now, and their relationship with other countries, it it works a little bit better. And the 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 actor who is also the director and writer, is Hitashi Matsumoto. He's like a really famous comedian in Japan. Nice. Anyways, back to the package. Ah, yes, the package. You'll understand why we um, why we had a non-sequitur for so long after I explained this. So this is a, a, a CGI-style film. A bunch of Spartans attack Covenant like carrier, and they recover the package. I didn't I didn't particularly care for this one. It's hideous. This, is, this one's probably my, my least favorite one, like by far. And the fact that it's the last one really. It's hideous, isn't it? Like to look it, at. It's yeah, it's not great to look at. Like the visuals themselves are not very good. The actions because, I mean, it's early CGI. So, I mean, I I, I got to at least keep that into account. But like. I, at this point, like I had seen, like video games have way smoother animation than this. It's it's a video game. Like this is this is, and I mean this as a negative. This is the closest this this anthology comes to just watching someone else play Halo. And even then, it's I mean it's not that close either. We get like the scenes in the hallway that are like in yeah, the first... that's true. Those are probably the only parts of this that I actually kind of liked, where you get the the POV first person stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm like, that doesn't that's not because it already looks like a video game cutscene. It yeah. doesn't feel innovative at all. I think in this one they also show a bunch of Spartans' faces as well. They do, which. Has happened in a couple of the other ones, but this, but this is one where they like focus specifically on Spartans and try to like turn them into characters. And I feel like that doesn't work as well. So, like, if we go back to the babysitter, I enjoy that one despite them like taking a Spartan's helmet off and kind of like trying to make a character out of a Spartan because it's they still keep that air of mystery around the Spartan themselves. Mm-hmm. Like we don't know much about them. A lot of what we know is, is conjecture by other characters and what have you that it makes the reveal like pulling off the helmet. that makes that reveal kind of interesting. This one, I think their, their helmets are off. I think if I remember right they're they're actually like doing the briefing before the mission or something like that yep. and going over their plan. So it's, it's, it's weird because they're like explaining what you're going to see before you see it. And you're basically just watching people talk to each other. If they maybe interspersed cuts of that into the rest of the the film, it might work a little bit better. So instead of them saying, okay, we're going to do this, this, and this, and then you watch them do this, this, and this, it's 
they do the thing and then maybe there's a cut and they explain like the next portion that they're going to do so that they don't have to like have dialogue of, hey, so-and-so, go hack that door or whatever. Like, you know, it just didn't sit well with me, this one. No, this one is... is... And it, it it's... What's weird, too, is this also, because there's, like, so many Spartans involved and Master Chiefs involved and, and has, like, and he has, like, a main role in this and, like, Cortana's a part of this, this, to me is the one that feels the least like it kind of fits in with everything that we know about this universe. Because it's like, this is like some whole huge mission that he went on to, like, save Cortana from yeah, the Covenant? like. And it's like, wait, wait, when did they get Cortana? Yeah. Because that implies that somebody failed the Cole Protocol. Yes. Which would be a huge plot point in the lore. That would be huge because it never happens. Right. And that's like that even contradicts like like we were talking about with the with the prototype. The prototype plays into that where it's like you can't Yeah, or it plays off it. Yeah. Yeah, you can't have that prototype fall into their hands. They're they're during that story, they are mad at him for using the prototype to fight off the covenant to give everyone else a chance to escape because they specifically order him to blow it up. That pl- it plays into the Cole Protocol, and then this one like just ignores it. It's also really ugly. Like, I'm sorry, I know that it's early animation, but it's not that early. Like, yeah, that, that yeah. What was I, I? What was I know Pixar has like bigger budgets, and they're making fi- feature films. But what was Pixar doing in 2007? It, it had to be like something actually good. I I would even argue you could go back to because at, at this point three I don't think three had come out yet right it was like right around the same time okay so so we'll say most people first time seeing this their only exposure to Halo before this was probably just the first two games and I would argue that there are better looking cutscenes in those games than there are in this film yeah this is like around the same time as Wally oh yeah. The- there's no excuse for how this thing looks. <laughs> <laughs> it's like around the same time as Ratatouille and Wally. Which yeah, again, you're right. I'm. Th- there's no excuse for that. Then those are feature films, and they're working with feature film budgets. But like this, this is is bad. <laughs> yeah. For me, the package gets it gets a two. <laughs> I'm probably right there. A little bit of fun to be had in some of the first person stuff in that one brief hallway sequence. Yeah, and that's that's pretty much it for me. It's like that okay, is, that is it. <laughs> <laughs> Overall, though, I you know Halo Legends. I'd say if you're a fan of Halo, it's worth checking out because it's an anthology and it's a series of shorts. If if the running length does kind of scare you, because it is, it's two hours long. It's really easy to watch, like two or three of these. Go do something else, or call it a day, whatever. Like it's it's really easy to watch just a couple of these, sort of the same way you would watch like a couple episodes of like The Office or something at the end of the day. There's no there's no uh, connective tissue between any of them, so it's not like the whole thing works as a narrative at all or anything. It's just a series of shorts. And that's that's 
that's kind of good because it just make like I said, it makes it really easy to just pop in, watch one, and pop out. Yeah, I I would say uh, overall, I I definitely enjoyed this. I think like you, if if you're a fan of Halo, definitely give it a look see. If you haven't already, I can't imagine too many Halo fans that haven't. For general audience viewing, I think there's still some stuff in here that is definitely enjoyable to watch. And if you have even like a passing knowledge of anything Halo, like maybe you've never really played the games, but you're aware of it. I think there's probably some interesting little story tidbits in there, too, that that, that might pique your interest. I think probably <laughs> the biggest negative to this one is having the package is like the last yeah. film. Right. I agree. It It's weird. It leaves you with like a worse taste in your mouth than it almost leaves you feeling like in a way the the sum is worse than the parts or whatever right like you know yeah. because you walk away with that being the last thing you experience and you're like uh i don't know if i liked that but yeah i bet if you just stopped watching it after like the babysitter you'd be like oh that was fun <laughs> yeah no if you stopped after the babysitter you'd go wow that was that was pretty good <laughs> overall i'd give halo legends probably a uh, a 4 out of 7 i think I'd give it a five, personally. Okay. It's a tough one. I, you know, that's like one of those, like, I'm somewhere around like a three and a half out of, fi- out of five, if I do it on that scale, where I think it's enjoyable and a fun watch, but there are some clunkers in there. But because it's, like, available on, I think, even YouTube for free. Uh, yep. It's available on, like, a whole bunch of free streaming services. It's really easy to go back and watch it and, like, just... Skip past the parts you don't like. Yeah. Yes. I feel like every once in a while now, I'll probably go back and it won't be often. It'll be like years in between. But like, you know, I could see like three to five years from now being like, oh, yeah, Halo Legends. And then like rewatch like the duel and uh, an odd one out and prototype and the babysitter, you know. Mm hmm. So that's Halo Legends. Now, that brings us unfortunately or fortunately (laughs) to halo the paramount plus streaming series that was released in 2022 i don't want to get too deep into this one because of multiple reasons not the least of which is we are already running long on this episode but the 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 showrunners were kyle killen and stephen kane Killen is most known for having written the 2009 Mel Gibson movie The Beaver, which I actually kind of like, and the screenplay for Netflix's Death Note adaptation, which I actually kind of hate. <laughs> Kane is a TV writer who has worked on The Closer, Alias, and even Curb Your Enthusiasm, and he currently serves as the season four showrunner for Amazon's Jack Ryan show, which I hear good things about, but I don't watch. This is one of those development hell productions that's been in consideration since almost the dawn of the idea of Halo as a transmedia franchise, which was greenlit ultimately for hopes of a 2015 release and morphed over literal decades of development. It was meant to be one of Paramount Plus's tentpole shows. It was originally conceived as being a possible Rupert Wyatt creation, and Rupert Wyatt did. Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which was the first of the new trilogy. So the weakest of the trilogy. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
but it was also possibly pitched as a Steven Spielberg joint. Uh, but it wound up eventually in Killen and Kane's hands. And with these two guys whose biggest accomplishments are CBS crime procedurals with episodes directed by people like Roll Rain or Ryan, who has done direct-to-DVD movies like Death Race, Jonathan Liebsman, who has been nominated for multiple Golden Raspberries, and music from Sean Kellery, whose credits also largely include CBS crime procedurals. How could it possibly go wrong? (laughs) The one thing I did look up as I was looking into, like, all the talent behind this, and I was like, did they just get scrubs from everywhere? The cinematographers... These dudes have legit work on their resumes. They've worked with oh. Roland Emmerich, which, like, love him or hate him, his movies generally look pretty good. Luke Besson, who has got a very unique visual style to his movies. And Lars von Trier, who, a very challenging director that I would not recommend to normies. <laughs> <laughs> not, to, not to sound like... Uh, not to sound like too much of a of a of a pretentious film snob, but uh, then I will say something that sounds exactly like a pretentious film snob. <laughs> That's usually how this goes. So, so you only watched one episode. Yeah, I put myself through this whole thing. Oh, why? Because oh, I'm a sadomasochist. I got to, to Master Chief taking his helmet off, and as soon as I saw it, I was like, I'm I'm done. <laughs> Master Chief taking his helmet off, like, what, 40 minutes into the first episode, right? <laughs> yeah. So, I watched this, and the, the basic story is it's Master Chief is fighting the aliens. Meanwhile, there's this girl who is working with the Covenant. Apparently, they, like... They, quote-unquote, kind of saved her from, like, a, looks like a garbage planet uh, when she was about to be, like, executed. And I, they call her something, like, the, the, the something. <laughs> okay. The prophet. This is not the prophet, but it's something like that. Like, ha- something Halo-y. <laughs> and what she is, is, is in the story of this show, the Forerunners are aware that humanity is the only one that can interact with forerunner technology. So they decide that they need to have a humid and that they like kind of brainwash into believing covenant beliefs. And that's what she is. The story of this one then too is about master chief. He touches a piece of forerunner tech and it starts like messing with his like military programming. He no longer, like just blat- blindly follows orders. He's starting to think for himself a little bit more. Also, along with that, he gets Cortana installed inside of him, not just in like his suit, which is what like the story of the show is. Yeah, it's got a lot more to do with Halsey being sort of the architect of all of this like stuff. There's a lot more of her playing politics against like the military people and trying to outmaneuver them in terms of she controls the Spartans and she wants the Spartans to be under her control and not the military's control. So there's like right off the bat, there's a lot of gray area stuff with uh, the protagonists of the show. Really? What else happens in this? Oh, in the first episode, master chief saves some little girl who's like an insurgent. You saw that much at least. Yeah. And then, 
then he like in the second episode or maybe third episode because I thought that was going to be the story of the show is like he's now protecting this girl. No, in like the second or third episode, he drops her off with his buddy who's played by Bakeem Woodbine. He now lives on his own, Bakeem Woodbine, on this like planet outside of UNSC jurisdiction where he's like the main boss. And then Master Chief just drops her off with him and then he leaves. (laughs) And the two of them never interact again for the rest of the show's runtime. We only ever we only ever briefly glimpse Halo rings ever. There's like nothing that ever happens on a Halo ring. Uh, the ultimate end game is that the piece of Forerunner tech that Master Chief interacts with in like the first episode helps them to find a map. This, this is a total fetch quest thing. It helps yeah. them to find the waypoint to find a thing that's going to give them a map to find Halo. And that's what they get at the end, is they get a map to find Halo. But the... (sighs) It's mostly boring, honestly. Like, forget how lore accurate it is. It's mostly just a really boring show. Like, all this stuff with Halsey trying to outmaneuver the military and stuff, I'm like, I don't really care. All this stuff with this girl that Master Chief saves, where she then, like goes off they have an entire episode where her and bakeem woodbine go on an adventure together do not care (laughs) it almost sounds like this was written as a different show and then they just like slapped halo paint on it it also it also has like the same problem as a bunch of streaming shows which is this is eight episodes ten episodes nine episodes it's like nine hours long, and it should be like easily half of that. Oh, you're talking where they they pad out the season so they have more episodes. Yes. Okay. And then also, like, I'm sorry, I knew going into this that Master Chief was gonna take his helmet off, even though all they they had the template for how to make a character who wears his helmet all the time work right there with the Mandalorian. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's sitting right there for them to, like, just go copy Disney's homework, for the love of God. <laughs> but, Please. But even even knowing he would take his helmet off, I was flabbergasted by how often he does it and the hilarity of how often he does it. There's a point where, at one point, he's walking around his childhood home that he was abducted from. Uh, because his memories are also starting to get unlocked and he's remembering like being kidnapped and things like that. He's walking around his childhood home. He gets in a warthog. As he climbs into the warthog, he throws his helmet on. They drive for literally 35 seconds, stops, jumps out, pulls his helmet right back off. <laughs> like it's stuff like that. Like he will like pop his helmet on to like do a thing for like, 15 seconds and then pop his helmet right back off and i'm like either have him wear it or have him not wear it this like nobody pops this this on and off both worlds it's ridiculous all i can think of is that scene from uh starship troopers (laughs) where 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 it's the training thing and the guy gets shot in the head because he took his helmet off (laughs) they do like he takes his helmet off in the middle of battles other characters do too, and you're like, what? It, like, this is the one time when you should be wearing it. 
Absolutely. <laughs> so, like, there's that piece of it. There's definitely the, like, who is this for piece of it? Because if you don't know Halo lore, there's parts of it that you'd be a little bit lost by. You'd be like, wait, like, who are these, well, like, aliens? And, like, I don't really get it. And But if you do, you're like... Whoa, 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 whoa. Why has Master Chief got his helmet off every 15 seconds? And, you know, why are they finding a map to Halo? Yeah, and and why? I'm sorry. Why are the Covenant working with a human? I'm sorry. This is like a that was a big sticking point for me because for two reasons. One is just the general like mythology and story of Halo in that like that the Covenant hate humanity and they want to wipe they, us out and they hate them so much they blow up our planets from orbit if they don't see it of like a reason to keep it around yeah and and they also like it's their religion and then this gets into the second reason of why i like really hated it is what better time and place than 2023 2022 america to talk about crazy religious movements and examine like how dangerous and cruel and and hip- hypocritical a, a a wild religious movement can be <laughs> and instead of doing that they they like there's there's very very little about the covenant being like a religious zealotry you know and that's like that's a huge part of it It, that's a huge part of the story and it's what like drives everything it's what makes so many of the covenants actions make sense that like how obsessed they are with all this because otherwise you'd be like well like they're already winning the war against humans why not just keep wiping us out it's like because it's not really about the war with humans it's about this religious great journey for them and when you wipe out the that piece of it, you wipe out a lot of what makes the Covenant make sense. Yeah, I would agree with that. And the first, I I'll t- I don't know how you felt, but I thought the first half hour or so was actually quite good. It, it started out okay. It's got a really good batch of action sequences. Master Chief comes in and he's all badass and beating up aliens and stuff and like... The, the Covenant all look great. The, the elites look good. I, I you know, would have liked a little more tactility. I, I almost wish, like, Halo Landfall had taken off so that we could have gotten something that was more of a blend of CG and, and live action. Because seeing a couple of these as suits would probably have been really kick-ass. But True. I understood. It's, it's 2023. But, like... After that first 30 minutes, which some of it looks like it's filmed on actual locations and things like that, it's like they spent all of their budget on that sequence to trick everyone into watching the rest of the show. And they don't do anything like that again until the last half hour of the last episode. Yikes. Yeah, sounds like I jumped off about where I, where I should have. <laughs> oh, and there's a whole thing. Oh, I didn't tell you that there's a whole thing where Cortana is implanted in Master Chief's neck. And she's there because um, she's going to spy on Master... Oh, there's... Yeah, I forgot about this piece. <laughs> she's spying on I was wondering on if you were going to bring it up or not. She's I heard about it. 
she's spying on Master Chief, and he like has an inhibitor placed in his spine that like inhibits his emotions and things, and he cuts it out, and she like reports back to Halsey um, that he cut it out. And then there's also this thing where she has this thing where she can take over his body and mind completely. Well, and why, Master Chief, why would you ever not? And Master, well, because they don't know if it's able to be reversed once she does it. Oh. But at the end, she does it. So Master Chief, at the end of this season, is no longer the Master Chief. He's Cortana. That makes zero sense. God, that sounds terrible. I'm sorry you had to watch that. So, I give it a... It's as bad as the package, I would say. I give it like a 2 out of 7. Oh. I gave it a zero. <laughs> I'd rather watch an entire season of the package over that. That's the Paramount Plus show. That's Halo Media. It is a mixed bag. I have personally also, and I don't, I won't, I will very keep this brief. Brief. I've personally also uh, watched all of the other stuff that they have for this. So there's there's Halo: The Fall of Reach, which is an animated thing, which is so bad. And so cheap looking and was put on DVDs and put on store shelves that I legitimately think someone somewhere deserves to be charged with a crime. My my pet theory is that it was uh, money laundering. It It is so horrendous looking. It's from 2015. Look, look up Halo Fall of Reach 2015 anime. Look at some of the screenshots and you will be flabbergasted. <laughs> Then there's then there's Halo Nightfall, which was it was meant to build up the character of Locke, who appears in in Halo Five, uh, sort of like a prelude to Halo Five, and it's like they get trapped on a, an alien planet and they're like trapped by the hunter just worms. All I remember about this whole thing is that it's like a really lame version of Pitch Black, and all of the sets look like they're leftovers from the Agro Crag from Nickelodeon's Guts. Nice. The last other thing I know of is Halo Forward Unto Dawn, which is sort of like a build-out of Halo 4, kind of expanding on some of the characters, and specifically uh, Lasky, the... the, uh, I don't know what he is. He's captain, I think, of uh, the, the Infinity, who like rescues master chief in in halo 4 and that one is okay it's definitely like they they only had like a two or five million dollar budget to work with so there's not a lot of action in it but it's also only like 75 minutes long they pull off the effects decently and you could watch this and kind of think oh i could see how like if you put money into it it's it's like a 75 minute version of landfall Oh, I see how if you yeah. put money into this, you could actually have something. <laughs> this is the type of thing where I was like, I wanted these guys to be the one to do the the Paramount Plus show. Maybe, yeah. I feel like that would have actually been something that I would have really enjoyed. So Halo Reach, Fall of Reach, I think I gave a half star. I think I gave, oh no, I gave it one star. Uh, but yeah, it deserves like one or half a star. Someone should be prosecuted. <laughs> Nightfall, I gave it one, and then and then forward unto dawn. If we're doing the Dragon Ball thing, I'm at like a three. I gave it like a two and a half out of five. All right, that's fair. 
of those you've just described, I've I've, I've seen the the Ford unto Dawn. I was going to be a little kinder to that, probably give it like a four. Again, just want to state that I feel like if these got the people that did this, sh- the uh, Forward Unto Dawn were given the kind of budget for the Paramount Plus show, I think we would have gotten something pretty good. Maybe. What, what was the the anime one? The uh, Fall of Reach, right? Yeah. I think I have seen that one. So that's that's actually based on one of the books. I think it's is it, it's one of the books, and then there was also a comic book adaptation. And then I think what the the big issue is is the, that anime is based on the comic book adaptation Mm. so i think what they were trying to do there was crib some of the art from the comic but it ends up making it just not look great that one i would probably give eh, i'd say probably a two on that one oh i hated it i think it's i think i think someone should be in jail for it well i I mean i'll admit (laughs) i think i'm a little biased because like i've read i read the comics that it was based on Mm -hmm. and i really enjoyed those comics so i i I, I guess I give it a little bit of leeway that way, but um, yeah, no. In general, it was it was just not very good. That's the Halo franchise. Oh, in terms of the games, just running through them very briefly. I love the first. I love the second. I love the third. I enjoy Reach. Okay, the fourth one is of the ones I've played through in their entirety. My least favorite. And then I started playing through five, and I was like, you know what? I'm going to actually go back and replay through the 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 first four before getting into five. So I was doing okay on five. I would imagine I probably will end up liking it better than four, if only because I think the knights aren't, the Promethean knights are not like completely broken like they are in four. Okay, I can see that. Yeah, for me, the, the heavy hitters are one, two, and three. Fantastic games. Love them. Reach, I thought was pretty good. Not quite the the first three, not quite that tier, but pretty close. Four and five were pretty middling for me, and then I didn't really touch the series until Infinite came out. I thought Infinite did some cool stuff with the the open world thing, but like they didn't really do anything super new or exciting. Like there was some map traversal stuff that they added that I thought was pretty cool, like the grappling hook and stuff. Mm-hmm. And some of its applications to multiplayer can be pretty funny. But like that was really the only thing that was iterated. Like a lot of the weapons were the same. A lot of like enemy tactics and stuff were the same. I, yeah, I just I felt like maybe they could have done a little bit more with that game. So that one's probably the lowest out of the ones that I've played. And I've never played three uh ODST or Halo Wars or Halo Wars 2. ODST is pretty good in my opinion. I know it's part of the Halo franchise, but in my mind, I don't really include it as like a Halo game mm-hmm. because because it's a different thing. Like you're playing an ODST Marine, you're not playing a Spartan. So, and they they reflected that in how the game is played. Like you can't really run out and, you know, tank like a whole group of enemies while you're, you know, shooting them and they're firing back at you and you're taking hits and stuff like that. You got to be a little bit more like traditional cover shooter Mm -hmm. uh, playing that one. So I feel like that difference in gameplay kind of makes it feel like a a, a completely different game. And I've never played the Wars games. My brother did. I've never been super big on um, strategy games. I own one of them and I've never played it. But so yes, that is that is Halo. We're fans, huge and, fans, and it's a mixed it's a mixed bag though. But the games are good. 
games are good. So, this is a long episode, people, but, I mean, I think we did better Hopefully than... Hopefully it was entertaining. I think we did better than most attempts to discuss an entire Halo franchise. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tall order. Well, listeners, that was a lot to discuss. We'll just take our leave of you here. What? No imminent death for me to have to face? Not at this time, no. Phew! Hey, it's Halloween. Plenty of time for a spooky monster to eat you. Wait, what if the gag is that I don't die during October? Gag? What the hell are you talking about? You know, I die, like, all the time, kinda. But what if it never happens when we're supposedly being all spooky? I wouldn't get my hopes up. Look, we're coming into orbit around Zeti-3. And? And the planet's surface is mostly molten rock, so... Plenty of opportunity for you to fall into a river of magma and perish. Actually, if it's flowing above the surface, it's called lava. Ooh, look who knows so much. Anyway, we will take our leave of you here, listeners. Will we find the warrior we're looking for on Zeti-3? Will Bikini perish in a river of lava? Find out next time and help us achieve our final forum. is written and produced by Tom Gwelly. It is performed by Dan Kinney and Tom Gwelly. Our webmaster is Dan Kinney. Our theme music is provided by YouTube content creator GVG Kit. Want to learn more about the Dragon Ball universe, including concept art, behind-the-scenes interviews, and recommendations from Jelly and Bikini? Connect with us on social media. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Final Forum Pod. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you receive your podcasts. And of course, make sure to share it with your friends and family and help us spread the word of the glory of Lord Frieza. The Frieza Force thanks you for your listenership. 